Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Research VR podcast, the podcast about the science and design of virtual reality and spatial computing. Today, we have a special guest, Paul Reynolds, the co-founder and CEO of Torch 3D, or the Torch app. Hello, Paul. Hi. It's great to be here and there all at the same time. Yes. <laughs> great to have you. And of course, beaming in from Germany, Mr. Peter Lekoff. Hello, everyone. Right now, I'm actually at the Augmented World Expo here in Europe. I sneaked myself out to the Airbnb, <laughs> freaked nice. out the hell out of the Airbnb host by wearing a VR headset and sending them a photo that, <laughs> no, I don't want to go to the kitchen. I'm fine here alone in my room with weird stuff on my head. And looking That's hilarious. To the nice. We want to hear more about Augmented Reality or Augmented World Expo probably in a bit, uh, especially, Paul, mm -hmm. with your background with magic yeah. leap and such but uh but i guess yeah let's let's start with there um what what's your background and how did you find yourself kind of within this virtual reality augmented reality realm yeah i mean the 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 common theme for my whole professional career has been kind of this intersection of technology and creativity and i've sometimes been more on the creative side and sometimes been more on the technical side and that's given me the ability to kind of speak in both directions and i ultimately figured out that uh, you know over the years that that's really the common thread behind all the crazy stuff i've done um my biggest stretch in my career was working in video games as a software engineer and um and, and that was true there as well where i would i would understand the technical challenges or opportunities and then i would be able to speak to the game designers or i would understand the business side and be able to help us solve problems uh that make the most sense in uh, with given the technology constraints um i did that for about eight years uh, i went completely independent and started consulting and and i always loved games but what i really loved was the craft of making them and what i what i figured out was is that i could use 3d technologies to solve other problems beyond gaming problems and so i started doing a lot of mobile development um a lot of uh i did a lot of uh, digital exhibits for monterey bay aquarium with a friend of mine spencer yes. who we both know and um through that i really started seeing 3d on mobile very early and so around 2011 or 2012 is when i really saw mobile ar for the first time and with my clients, we had a couple of projects back then that we we pitched, but back then it was very marker based, and you know there was only a couple of phones that could even do it, so it was a hard sell. Um, but I was super interested because I was like, here, this totally triggers my, you know, the things I like working on is 3D, it's interactive, it works with the real environment, anyone can use it on their mobile device. It had a lot of exciting things. Um, then I wound up doing a couple projects with Spencer and another friend of ours, Graham Devine. And we were wrapping up a project in, uh, in 2013. And Graham's like, this crazy company in Florida is won't stop calling me. Uh, I don't believe them. They say they can make virtual objects look like they're in the real world. I don't believe them. Um, but I'm going to go check it out. And he disappeared for a couple months. And we just didn't hear <laughs> from him. And then he came back at the end of 2013 and said, I saw it. It's pretty cool. They need our help. I know you guys have been independent for years. You don't necessarily want jobs in Florida, but I, you know, we can contract you. And that's how we kind of got pulled into Magic Leap. So Roni 
uh, Roni, the CEO of Magic Leap, has, has, there's a lot of stories along these lines where he basically sees someone that represents a part of his vision and expertise and a part of his visions. This is exactly how, you know, we wound up working with Neil Stevenson or John Gaeta. And so in the early days, he, he, he found Graham and basically recruited Graham in very early and then Graham pulled us in. And so I joined very early in 2014 and um, worked for that company for almost three years and left on really great terms. I'm really friend, friendly. I've had a, an amazing time at LeapCon last week, um, meeting a bunch of new and old friends. And um, ultimately, that's where I got the insight that I wanted to pursue with Torch. Um, and it was also observing at that time, that period of time, that 2014 to 2016 period in particular was when the Rift uh, consumer version came out, um, the Vive, the, you know, the initial Vive came out, the pre. And right. I was watching some of the same challenges we were seeing on the Magic Leap side. But I couldn't participate in those because we were being very, very secretive at the time. Yeah, and yeah. Um, and I ultimately saw this as an opportunity. Um, and, and and that insight was, um, not everybody can be a video game developer like I was, and not everybody wants to be. And the companies that have these great digital products and product designers, um, we really need them thinking about spatial computing, immersive computing. Um, but the workflow and how you get into this world is so foreign to what they know from doing web and mobile development and product development. And so I saw that as a huge opportunity for us that we could kind of open the floodgates uh, of good designers, good product people building a lot of new products that are compelling in these new mediums. But first we needed a way for them to be able to just jump into it without this crazy learning curve or jumping straight into software development, which is kind of the, deal till now and uh, i knew that would be helpful for any new medium that's spatial or immersive and so that that i wanted to be just autonomous and i also was ready my wife and i were ready to move out of florida to be honest so we moved to the west coast in portland oregon and and that's where we started torch and it was to solve that issue solve that problem and so torch is not a specifically a game design app right this is something that is within spatial computing but it's it's a way you're trying to bridge that knowledge gap between all these developers that know web and and mobile to start working in 3d without having to like be a game designer first is that is that yeah. a good way of yeah that's that fair. i mean the yeah the 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 most the, the 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 most obvious thing is that if you look at how really good mobile and web applications are built today they're built design first, they prototype first, and they have these great tools for visually building, you know, a, a single, this was the, this was the big kind of insight we had um, when we formed the company, uh, a single UX designer working on a mobile application can design and prototype and test an idea completely on their own, on device, and share it with the stakeholders to get approval and buy-in. And you have a much more, um, cohesive sense of the the product that's going to be built, which makes using your engineering resources more efficient. And, and so, uh, you know, the, com contrast that to maybe 10 years ago, where first we'd write the code and we'd make it functional, and then we'd hand it to a UX person and say, can you make this usable or make it look nice? Um, that's completely flipped in the mobile world in particular in the past five years, I would say. It's very design first and let's engineer around the, the, the design or the desired outcome. 
and it makes it easier to test. It makes it, it's just so much, makes so much more sense. That workflow just did not exist in 3D at all. And, and that's, that's exactly the, the first problem we wanted to solve. Uh, and it was to offer this, this visual jump straight into it type of thing. Um, can I ask a question? Yes. Um, do you think that um, this change in how apps are designed those days came from the fact that, in fact, most of the features that an app entails are kind of doable? There is no magic behind it. It's just, you know, you write clean code, but everything has been kind of, you know, there are tutorials for everything, and now you actually have finally the resources to focus on this whole design process, or is it just because design became more important? Uh, I I think it's a combination of those things, but it's absolutely true that once the iPhone came out and people, you know, a lot of people did it the hard way for the first few years. And then once the interaction patterns emerged, it made those prototyping tools even more powerful because you, would, you weren't rebuilding every little interaction or every little mechanic from scratch. We just don't have those in 3D. So we know that we'll get to that point. And, and what we did with Torch is we didn't, we didn't assert or assume any interaction patterns beyond the basics. And we know that if we get the right creatives iterating, they'll be the ones that figure out what are the good interactions, especially in the AR context where you're working with the real environment. And so we just wanted to start off with that first, make iteration super cheap, super fast, super easy. And then those patterns will emerge. And then as we figure out that, you know, we like even building, you know, keeping in mind, Torch is also an augmented reality app unto itself. And we had to figure out a lot of stuff from scratch. And so as we start to figure out what works and what doesn't, um, we can actually create those higher level abstractions and, and let people build even more complex things faster. And so uh, that is, but that, that is certainly true that, that the prototyping came in the mobile side, once kind of Apple and Google and all the other mobile players kind of generally agreed on how the software works. And it's just too early for that. And, and right. especially in the AR space. Yeah. I think the, one of the biggest elements of mobile development is how fast you can iterate on the design. Even if it's low fidelity prototypes with like Envision, right? You can export your, the screens from, from sketch straight into Envision and like put hotspots where things get tapped and swiped and all these very simple yep. interactions. Uh, send it to users, send it to a focus group and, and see, you know, just do a simple A B test on, on which one works better. Yeah. You can do all of that without having to go into Xcode and actually, you know, publish. That's Right. Uh, an app so that I, I remember you know especially in, in college when i'm still was dealing with like hci uh experiments like that was incredible to do and i want and i that was the first time i like got into unity as well and i realized just to make a like a ui canvas was like a whole day day in of itself to figure out how to make like a button actually work and and yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly the first role we wanted to play with this initial product, and um, you know, it's not any easier, plus, by the way. It's, yeah, it's well, still but, just you, as hard. The other, you know, jumping jumping into Unity and and trying, you know, coming from like the Envision Sketch workflow, and then jumping into Unity, there is no analog. There is nothing familiar, you know, about that, and so. That's uh, honestly, if you look at what we currently have out there, it is kind of a hybrid between the two. We we take some uh, notions from the two D side, like interactions and and working with assets, but then there's also some elements that you might find in a Unity type of game engine, where you know we're dealing with 
um, models and animations and scenes instead of screens. You know, we talk about that all the time, scenes versus screens. Um, and, and we want to interop between all those things. So actually, we just did a blog post this week that's done really well, which is how to get your sketch UI into Torch. And it's, oh, to, cool. it's to exactly to appeal to that to that same problem you encountered. You're ahead of the curve. Like there's right. basically we, we saw a lot of people getting ready to jump off that cliff of, well, I'm really I'm, I'm really comfortable in the in the 2D workflow. And now my client or my boss is asking, what can we do in AR? And I'm opening Unity, and it's like totally tuned for writing software for a video game. Uh, I mean, is ultimately is is what that's for. So that's exactly exactly what we're here for. Yeah, um, I guess one of the one of the most compelling things that I've seen that's come from torches is this kind of wayfinding uh, video <laughs> yeah. that was tweeted. So maybe can you give us a little bit of context about that? And if, is this one of the, the use cases that you're foreseeing coming is like for AR to be used as a way to give that introduction to someone into a space. Like you can imagine in an Airbnb, instead of you having to message someone back and forth, she's leaving behind, you know, or the person's leaving behind notes uh, for you to follow and, 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 you know, the, the typical things that are really hard to translate from paper to real space. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the real story behind that video um, was we were talking with an agency overseas that wanted to pitch a AR wayfinding project to a really big client. And they've been using Torch to kind of just get a feel for what is it like to walk around our designs and work in AR and they contacted us and said, well, we have this very specific thing, and it feels like Torch is capable of allowing us to, keeping in mind we're talking about prototyping for the time being, allowing us to prototype this idea to present it, to get buy-in. And, and so I had a, we had a call, and I was, you know, I have everything that Torch can do is in my head. So I just kind of gave them the fire hose of all the ways they could test this idea in their own office. And then we ended the call, and at lunch I was like, you know, I... It, I could have just built an example <laughs> and shown it to him. So my lunch break, I went throughout, that's our office building in that video. And, um, I built up, it up on the screen on, too that we can look at. Yeah, I built, I'll link this in the uh, description for people to, to look at the yeah. video as well. Yeah. And so when I built it, um, and I just, I built it really to just record and share with them. Um, but I decided to post it online and I was really surprised by the reaction. And, but in hindsight, I'm not because, because what it shows is, is something, it shows an AR use case that everyone can appreciate. And it, it's actually practical and it, it enables something um, that would not be possible through any other means, right? It's unique to the medium. So wayfinding is a huge use case for AR. Um, the, the, it got so much exposure, though. Then we, you know, we had to be clear that we aren't building wayfinding experiences. We built the tool that allowed us to test this idea and uh, that's why I followed up the next week with a more of a view of inside the app. But I, and I wrote a blog post on how I built it, um, just so people could see how quickly that came together. What was funny was I got a lot of you know obviously I've got a lot of friends in this space and like yourself are super savvy about how these things are done, and they were like, "What did you? How did you scan the building to build this? You know, how did you place the content?" In the on the different floors and and in the right places, did you have a scan of the building? Did you like have a map? And I, I was like, no. I, I can I can I guess? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. You you literally start always from the same uh, point, right? Yeah, I mean, because I, actually, 
I'm just it's a side story. Uh, what I see here, what you did in 45 minutes, me and I think three other or two other hackers during a hackathon, we kind of built something similar. It was for navigation. It took us three days, and um, the guy was like a really good Apple developer, so he used actually you know Xcode and stuff. Yeah. And it took us like three days to do kind of something similar. A little bit shittier, obviously. But similar, like, you know, you go from point A to B, it points you with an error, and then you see a ship, because it was, like, for, you know, a ship hackathon. But it took us three days, and you did it in 45 minutes alone. That's really impressive. Right, yeah, I mean, and how I did it was I literally walked up to the spot where I wanted that content. I placed it, tuned it, I was able to look at it visually, and then I hooked up the interaction and moved on to the next checkpoint. I didn't have to go back. I didn't have to go back to the starting point to hook up every checkpoint because uh, we set one project anchor, which is kind of your origin point, and everything in that entire experience is placed relative to that original anchor. So it's actually kind of impressive if you think about the technical part. AR Kit uh, allowed me to walk f- about 150 to 200 feet up multiple levels, and was able to relatively keep that content placed pretty well spatially so i built it visually just to um kind of help our uh, our listener audience here i think we, we haven't done a good job of actually ex- explaining what we're seeing <laughs> here um so you know in terms of wayfinding can you there's a there's a drone so you enter a building right and it said bakery yeah. uh, on the on the floor mat and it yeah, starts with our that bu- our building's called the bakery blocks yeah okay yeah and and really the this is really in our design environment. So, you know, I think we, we also maybe should explain that Torch is completely mobile application. So we run 100% on an iPhone or an iPad. There is no desktop. This is all built visually using all the sensors of the device in the environment that you want to work in. And so I set an anchor point at the beginning of the experience, which is at the front door. And then, every, and then I go into what's called play mode. So anyone that's familiar with Unity... Uh, this is very similar in that I've hooked up all the interactions. I'd already built this for this recording. And so I go into play mode. And when I go into play mode, the design environment UI goes away. And basically, I can interact with the content. And uh, and I'm just tapping. So I'm walking up to the initial thing, tapping the text. And the robot came from Sketchfab. We have Sketchfab integrated. So you can just use models that are freely available. And I'm using Torch to animate the position from this, this position to the next position. And we're using uh, animation curves and tuning and timing to give you like this. Sen- it, it actually helps you guide the user to the next checkpoint. And that's really all there is to it. You're, 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 there's a drone that's kind of your guide in this building. And yep. As soon as you step in, it's like, hey, come over here. And it prompts you to go and, and stand by the first checkpoint that has some text to tell you where you are. And then as soon as you're done with that, the drone fl- you know, flies up the stairs and goes up upstairs. And you follow the drone. You go up there to the second checkpoint. And, and you see, yeah, you're going through an entire building following this little cute drone around. Uh, and as yeah. you said, you found the model on Sketchfab, which we you have – Sketchfab integration, so you can just pull in models, you know, free 3D or licensed models from there, um, and then anchor them and place them throughout the building. So it ends with uh, the last checkpoint is these (laughs) stormtroopers dancing next to the office where I guess you're supposed to have a meeting. So it's a really... That's where the party is. 
Right, exactly. Like you don't even have to speak. the The cool thing about this is like you don't. It's not language specific, right? Like these are very visual things that you're following, and you know you're doing. You're going the right way. Actually, maybe you're you're implementing some game design. You know, level finding, uh, the way you light uh, hallways or the way you prompt people to go down a certain way, and and for them to know they're going down the right way through the level. Yeah, the 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 little the little drone robot, all all that really. I mean, it it had some visual interest because it's a cool looking model, but it really it, at every checkpoint, it's showing you the next place to kind of look, and it, and it's guiding your head. I mean, and you know, to be fair, I'm recording this video from the same iPad I built this on, so I'm controlling the camera and the recording. Um, but it it works pretty well, um, and the, you know, we took this even further with. Uh, the actual onboarding for Torch. The first time you sign into Torch, we have a kind of a tutorial that happens in the space. And um, our product designer, Keith Hamilton, wrote a whole blog post about that. And 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 that one, we don't know what environment you're in, right? So we can't tune it to a specific environment. And uh, and so we actually have you stand in one spot and we, we kind of force you to rotate around in a circle. And we do that through knowing kind of your peripheral and showing that there's a little bit of something off to the side that kind of draws you or draws your eyes up. You know, the first thing you do is we walk, we have you walk into the spot and then there's enough hinting to get you to look straight ahead. And, uh, you know, it, these are things we've discovered just trying to get our product built. And, and I'm super excited to see all the clever ways, you know, um, and, and you're also somewhat limited in mobile AR and, and you have to do a lot of visual, but you know, we had a lot of experience with this at magically working with headsets where you have spatialized audio and you, you can actually do a lot of really cool, uh, tricks to get people to look where you want them to. So, but, but what we constantly have to remind ourselves, we are thinking so far ahead of most people that just giving someone the ability to look at look at something in the real environment and think about how can I guide someone from point A to point B? That's where the designer really shines. You don't want the tech to get in their way. You want it to enable them. And that's, that's what we're hoping to do. You know, we're hoping that we'll help educate people on some of the tricks we've learned and and how we built an AR product. But I really believe that very soon we'll have some amazing standout spatial designers that, that were enabled because of torch. They'll show us the best version of wayfinding that they will be. So may- maybe just one example how this could be used in real life, because uh, from technological perspective, it sounds amazing, but I guess some people might, you know, wonder, okay, but, but why would you actually do it? Um, I think there is a statistic that around one third of people in hospitals never reach their final destination <laughs> to do a certain test. Uh, so, you know, a doctor sends them, you know, go over the blocks, three kilometers through this big building and get your blood test done and come back. Well, like one third of people gets lost. So, I mean, that there is like, you know, a lot of research with doing it with robots and stuff. But, you know, like even in a hospital, you know, using this technology would be totally life changing for people because, you know, it would basically, you know, save a lot of resources and people would just find their doctor uh, that they need to do the blood test or blood work that they do need to do, right? I mean, it's a huge uh, improvement. And uh, obviously also finding rooms and offices is never easy because you usually call them funny. Right. Like, so our offices are called like ginger and, <laughs> right. you know, uh, whatever, pepper and like, yeah, try to find those. Yeah. Would be amazing to have it every day. Well, I it, guess it needs still have like some kind of headset, right? I mean, you don't see really people walking with a 
big 12-inch tablets. So no, I, do you think it's something that will happen? Yeah, I think it'll happen on mobile devices. I, you know, on um, most of our designers that are they're currently using Torch are actually building on phones, which is a surprise for us because the pa- you know the iPad obviously has the bigger screen, but more people just have the phones available. I mean, we can't ignore the install base of these devices, and they're very powerful. Um, and yeah, so I, I do, I mean, just as I, 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 especially the new generations coming up that have been, you know, growing up with this technology, um, they're going to be much more inclined to hold up a phone than to look for a placard on a wall and try to figure out, you know, this, it, it, you can come up with uh, wayfinding, just wayfinding is one little slice. There's a million ways that it could be improved, like finding your hotel room and things like that. And then, and then what I'm excited about is the people getting creative on top of that, which is well, maybe dependent upon, maybe I can choose what's going to guide me to my destination. And dependent upon the character I choose or the the route I choose, I get a different experience. So, you know, one example is like I'm, I'm going through a zoo and uh, I choose a different host. And depending upon which host I choose to walk me through, I see a different path. You know, so we can actually, and it, it's a whole layer of experience and story on the physical environment that we can introduce. But I, I think we don't get there yet until we show those practical use cases first. And so we say, you know, mm-hmm. uh, your, your comment in terms of like millennials being more inclined to use their phone to find where they're going rather than a placard that even exists today. Thinking of myself, I will use Google maps to the last meter of, of <laughs> movement <laughs> instead of like being on the block and being like, Oh, I can find the restaurant by just trying to find their sign. But I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm going to like look, <laughs> yeah, exactly. To that GPS marker location, and then I will like look. And if I'm not immediately seeing it, I go right back to Google Maps, being like, "What? What am I doing wrong here?" So um, it's probably because I don't know. We there's probably good good reasons why we you know we show that kind of the behavior, but um, that's only going to get more. I think. And and just as a side note, I guess our navigational skills are dramatically being reduced because of GPS or just like our natural uh, understanding of streets and and movement through is, is we're relying way less on. No, no, I know I'm not making a a judgment on it itself, (laughs) but I'm just, it's a, it's an observation that we, I think there's even research about like our, uh, the, the real estate in our brain that is dedicated for um, understanding spatial uh, relationships between things is like, slightly reduced because we're less time we're doing we're spending less time pathfinding and more time just relying on transactive memory think about uh you know how many phone numbers do you have memorized i can i I, yeah yeah (laughs) i i I have my wife's but that's that's because i have to enter that into forms and stuff all the time but you know it wasn't that long ago where you would you people would have 10 phone numbers you know their house their office and um and, and you just the technology's eliminated the need for you to waste the cycles on that, and and and, and it's just evolved to a different point. We've abstracted away phone numbers, so you may know the street address you're trying to get to, and you can look at the corner and you could deduce uh, where you need to go. But why? I you know I, I have technology. I have a very powerful converged device in my hand right now. Let it let it do its work. So. Okay, let's let's move away from pathfinding because it seems like you're not trying to build a pathfinding app. Like that's just one of the things <laughs> no. that comes from it. Um, I guess uh, one burning question to me is why? Uh, so why did you pick mobile AR to uh, as the platform to really build on? Uh, and yeah. especially coming from Magic Leap, like why not already in a, a already in an AMD based AR um, instead yep. of mobile? So we actually started in VR. 
Um, so the company has been around um, since, well, we started working on it in 2016. We formed the company early 2017. Most of 2017, we were VR-based. And if you think about the problem that um, we're, we're trying to solve, which is getting more professional experienced designers into 3D, at the time, uh, we identified multiple kind of friction points. One was dealing with 3D assets and models and, and, and you know, are, are nothing like working with 2D files. And so we had some ideas around how to help with that. Um, the next big challenge was getting someone feeling empowered in the 3D coordinate space and feeling like they really could just, I want to put an object here. I don't want to navigate with a mouse and keyboard with a desktop environment to put something. I just want to, like I'm placing a picture on a wall. I want to hang, you know, I want to, I want to visually work in 3D. And then the third final piece was, even if you had people that had taught themselves Unity or some game engine, that um, for them to collaborate with others while they're iterating, still very difficult in that in that mode. So we saw VR at the time was the way that we got the n- intuitive manipulation of 3D objects, because we're tracking both hands, we're tracking the head. And even though we came from years of working in AR, um, but it was the best option. And for a while there, we were actually dual, and you could seamlessly work between VR and AR. And that was because we were running a lot on top of the web VR stack, and we had an AR proof of concept. And um, ultimately, we we tested earlier this year um, with that version, and people liked the 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 seamless capability between VR and AR. Um, but by this time, AR Core and AR Kit had been announced. Uh, our AR our AR version was much more demoable. We just hand it to someone, and people gravitated towards the the mobile version. And when we said, you know, when we really looked at all the work our small team was having to do to have this feature parity between VR and AR, um, AR just had the bigger install base. It it made a lot of sense for our target market, which which are these professional designers, uh, UX people. And um, they already have an iPhone or iPad generally, or a, mo- or a smartphone at least. Not a lot had headphones or headsets, sorry. And and so we just committed. We we made that call in, earlier this year and started with a clean code base. And so we're going to go f- fully native, um, completely focused on ma- mobile AR. And the reasons were that not only could we add more powerful features faster, we could really push the boundaries of designing in AR versus like some you know, uh, watered down version in VR and AR. And so we just fully committed to that. And I, I just strongly, yeah, but it, it, it did come from that time working at Magically. I mean, we do believe in this future, that the future of computing is 3D and spatial. I, you know, we're agnostic to if that happens in a VR headset or, or, but we know AR is the harder challenge, but it also has the most interesting opportunity in the near term for the class of people we're working with, which is like, big agencies, enterprises, and people that want to test out what's possible in AR, I really feel like you've got to be on a device to do AR iteration because you're working with sensors in the real environment. Um, So, you know, we may bring back AR or VR at some point if we saw a demand for it. But right now, we really just want to press far ahead with AR. And and the mobile implementation is the best version of that right now. But we are definitely thinking about wearables and you know what i want to show people you know back to that back to what we said earlier about how we're showing people how they can pull their sketch 
assets into Torch. So that's kind of a bridge to the traditional mobile 2D workflow. Once we get people iterating in Torch, I don't want them to feel like that's a dead end. Like, oh, well, I'm only learning about mobile AR. No, we're teaching you to think spatially and we're teaching you to think about how to interact with the real environment, how to understand how sensing works, image recognition and tracking. How does interaction work when an arbitrary environment's in front of you? And that will completely translate to headsets. So, you know, we're going to be really clear about, um, we would never, you know, we, we only want people thinking about this future. We don't want to lock them into a specific device or capability. And we just felt like this was the most accessible, rapid way to do that. So, but in terms of designing, uh, sorry, I, but in terms of like designing um, interactions seems to be like probably right. Uh, the interaction design seems to be like one of the biggest elements of both VR and AR, how you're interacting with yep. something, what you're doing. Um, I mean, how do you deal with that limitation with if you're concentrating on on mobile AR first with the, the interactions that you have with that is mostly just tapping on the screen, like whether you're interacting with a button by tapping on it or you're, mo- you're walking somewhere and you're looking at something uh, and without having, let's say, hands or, or controllers as part of like the, the package that you have to interact with. Um, I guess maybe maybe it's a part of like what you see is the future of AR and what where that's going, but what do you think the future of AR will look like in a, in a few years and how will we be interacting with things? And, and I guess, how would you want to be designing? Uh, how, yeah, how yeah. would you want to make design tools for that? So I, I actually disagree. Um, you know, we do have the glass uh, interaction as something that we fall back on that's reliable, but the... Glass. the 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 you know the 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 touch the touch input, um, but the the AR the AR enabled AR kit or AR core enabled device is a sixth off input. You know I am fully positionally and rotationally tracked, and in in it actually um, it serves duality in that it could be considered as a proxy for your gaze, but it's also your positioning, and and so you know when we designed. Uh, immersive experiences for a wide variety of headsets, we have to go with the lowest common denominator inputs, right? And usually it's gaze and select. Now, whether that's select is tapping a button on my temple or I'm holding a three-doff controller, but we know where people are looking and we want them and we can respond and that can be your hover state, that can be your your intent, and then select is some sort of com- confirmation. So at a minimum, you can do that. And then with a with a, a controller-based platform that gives you the ability to point and 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 grab and and to so we can mimic a lot of that on the glass on the touch UI. So <clears throat> I think, and also once again reminding you as much as I have to remind myself every day, we're thinking way ahead of the target market that we're working with. And so you know, just getting them to think about that you can put a 3D model in the space and walk around it. Like, I can't tell you how many, t- that back to the wayfinding video, I had at least a few people come back and say, well, that's just superimposed video on top of video, right? And I, no, I was no, like, no, no. no, I could walk, f- I could walk fully around yeah. any of those objects. And so that's how new this is for a lot of people. Um, so I think we've got plenty of room uh, just educating with the very simple interactions. And, and, and to answer your other question, inside of Torch, we have a full interaction system and you hook up interactions based off triggers. And those triggers are triggered off of selection, which can be touch, 
uh, or gaze, gazed at, gazed away, we're, we're going to be adding a few more triggers here very soon that I'm super excited about because we're finally adding what I would consider AR-specific interactivity. And a lot of that is around, you know, the positioning of a person and uh, the real environment, uh, tracking and detecting the real environment and using that as an interaction. So I, I think, I, you know, I, I, I will admit a couple of years ago, I thought that it, especially when we were VR-based and, and our heart has been so on the AR side of things for so long that we could have AR prototyping in VR. I think you can do that a little bit, but if you really want to push to the constraints of, I think you really got to be on a device working in that device. And I don't, I don't, I also don't think you want to over index on any one particular input capability because they're changing right. so fast, so often, you know I mean? Yeah. Magically introduced to... sixth off on mobile and now they're going to have dual controller sixth off the go, you know I mean? Like exactly. You know, so you, 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 you want to be flexible anyway to, to input right. in particular. But there is a certain amount of like, I am making a prediction that it will be at least this or and, and because I need to start building my tools for that, right? Like that clearly, yeah, that's something I mean, that you're thinking well, the, about. Here, here's the thing. So we're building, we're building the current tool to help people think about mobile AR experiences on the surface. But I mean, we came from a world of, I mean, so my, my, my other co-founder, Josh, he worked at Magic Leap for almost three years as well. And he was head of the SDK team. And that was one of the teams I oversaw. So we are we're ready for that world. We just think it's going to take a little time to get there. Sure. Uh, so you know, we're fully you know, f- we we just had a meeting yesterday where we talked about a certain feature we're adding in that on mobile AR is kind of okay, but when we know when it's on a headset, it's going to be amazing. Mm-hmm. And so we're that's kind of the role we're playing as well. It's like helping people get into 3D with what's practical for the mainstream. You know, for 2018 and 2019. And and we certainly will have many pathways to other devices and and, and applications. Yeah, I guess there's always room to di- to to go deeper into one specific direction once you start with yep. a base layer of uh, of well, yeah, fixing slam and fixing localization, like all of those which are already are kind of fixed or built from Apple's and Google's side, and then you're building the whole design layer on top of that, and then whichever into input method is what is really popular and makes sense for your customers, then that's something I'm sure you can like go into. Right. Yeah. I mean, like I said, uh, we will, we will, we will help guide the market towards that future. And, but it's a real humble reminder that even today that getting, getting someone that is so accomplished, like top of their game on the mobile app side, getting them to think about when you bring in that 2d asset into 3d, unless you hook up some behavior to it, um, you can walk around it and you can look at it on its side and it almost disappears because it's flat right. or people can see it backwards. And, you know, so getting people to think about something as simple as having an asset always face the camera um, and, and have that work for everyone that's, you know, in that experience, that's the level of fundamentals that we're, we're introducing now. And I, I think, I mean, Torch is as it sits right now today is capable of much, much more. But what we've learned is, is we've got to help kind of guide people to, we got to equip people to think about, think in 3d, think spatially is the, is kind of the, the goal for us right now. We've got the tool. We just need people that need to have, they need to have projects they want to do because it always helps to be motivated to try to try this thing. Um, but also g- give them comfort in what's possible today 
and and then help them start thinking about, oh, I see how this would work in a pair of classes, you know, in a couple years, or I could see how right. this might translate into VR or you know, portable inside out VR in particular. Yeah, I think you're really building that infrastructure that is needed for the entrance of glasses into this world, right? Because I think a Apple strategy has probably been one of the, the best when it comes to having developers, millions of developers learn uh, what, th what learn a little bit of 3D, understand how ARKit works, slowly add the, the necessary features, right? The, uh, the localization, the multiplayer, all these things that you really need are but are really hard problems to solve. But then all of that like I call these columns that we need for like glasses for them for those to arrive, and then you have like five years worth of content that you, you already have access to. And well, just building good products, right? Like good digital products. Like the the right now, everyone caters to the engineer. We put out SDKs and we put out APIs. And if you're lucky, you're a you're you're a designer, you're a product minded person that has some engineering capabilities, or you're really friendly with an engineer that you can work with. And if you look at like how web applications and mobile applications have evolved, the platform companies always just put out the SDK. Very few have put out design tools, and very f and none have put out good design tools. And, and and ultimately, those have always come out of the you know kind of out of the ether uh, to help you know once once the patterns are you know back to that that conversation about once the interaction patterns are kind of sorted out, that's when the tools come and. And so we're actually kind of flipping on its head a little bit. We're putting good design tools out now to help find those patterns faster. Because uh, we went through a lot of pain with mobile. <laughs> you know, we forget yeah. about, you know, yeah. uh, iPhone didn't have copy and paste for a real long time. And, Very you know, long you know, time. <laughs> so stuff <laughs> like that is, um, you know, I, I believe some of the reasoning behind that was uh, a lot of building apps for BlackBerry and iPhone, which I did both, was very difficult and very code heavy and it really did not allow for much kind of um iteration on the design and interaction side for a very long time um, so I, I don't want to um play down the roles that you're playing uh with uh the tool you're building i think it's uh, really setting as uh, a groundbreaking uh future however um i somehow see uh, an analogy what happened for example with the web and let's say uh what they call bootstrap or yep. all those libraries that came out and i mean just imagine yourself 10 years ago in the state of internet we had everything is flash everything is buggy everything is broken yep. and today when a website is not you know responsive to all of my devices i'm like <laughs> hmm do i trust those guys that say why didn't they just pay 50 bucks for you know right. a skin for a wordpress so um, i think um it is in a sense Kind of also from the user's perspective, what they're used to, the moment that the user would get used to, you know, kind of a decent, good design, they won't go back. But as long as the users are not really used to good stuff. I mean, today I was walking through this Augmented World Expo and I see so many business people having the HoloLens on or some other devices. And you see this typical face yep. that you would like to photograph. You know, Whoa, <laughs> I see 3D. And, and I mean, sure. I mean, I had it too when I first tried VR and I first tried the HoloLens. But I think... Uh, I mean, people might have had the same effect when they first tried, you know, the text-based web. But I think our standards just grow. And with the standards, the need for design comes, but also the tools develop. But also there is more more resources to do the good design because yes. suddenly you don't need to figure out SLAM. I mean, so many companies try to build their own tracking, yes. their own SLAM approach. And I mean, you still have those giants today all competing among each other. And it's amazing. I mean, how much money is those days spent 
in all those companies together just to figure out how to locate yourself in space. But before that, you basically spend the first few months figuring out, okay, how do I actually locate myself? Do I use Euphoria? Do I write something my own? Do I use trackers? Now you just rely on something that is there and suddenly yes. your mind's freed up and you can think about more important things. But it's just a very painful and slow pace, I guess, for a lot of people. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, to to your point, we, we talk about this all the time, is the progression from desktop computing to web computing and then from web computing to mobile computing. And then there's kind of another layer on top of that, which was social. And if you look at the progression... It was, uh, the web was kind of, people didn't know what to do with it, and especially the text version of it. And <clears throat> slowly people, in particular enterprises and brands, had a, enough money to put a little effort into it. And it, but it was still kind of a fringe, it wasn't a core part of their business, right? Let's have a website. Well, what's going to be on our website? Well, it'll be like a brochure. It'll have our logo and it'll talk, you know, but then enough people started playing with it and figuring out how to make it functional. And then enough audience came and then we learned how to do transactions and then businesses were built completely on top of the web. And we saw the same exact thing happen with mobile. When mobile came out, you'd have these bizarre brand applications that had it, it, it was basically a brand said, well, when somebody searches in the app store for our brand, something should come up. And when you launch it, it doesn't really do anything. And then once there was a, once the critical mass happened and I, and I think they're self-fulfilling, right? I think, I think the audience comes when you show them the compelling use cases, you gotta have those breakthrough like So maybe wayfinding is that, that breakthrough, like, yes, I see why I would use this. But once enough people do it, then same thing happened. You had people conducting business completely on mobile. And the same thing, in my opinion, with social, I, I'm, I've always used social media for years and years, like 10 years and, or longer, actually, now that I think about it. And it was a very niche communities and, you know, you, it, and now it's blown up, it's mainstream and it's become a platform for advertising, branding, doing business, getting work done. It's part of our daily lives. And so we're seeing that same exact early signal um, espe you know, especially in the mobile AR case where we're seeing brands and businesses say, well, we, we want to add a little bit of AR functionality to our existing mobile app just to, just to help us stand out or to help us understand what's going to be possible. And there's going to be a few of those breakout experiences where people, the, the general public is going to become more aware of AR and, and what's possible. And then eventually, you know, we'll, you know, we will, and our, our hope at Torch is that we just speed up that iteration. And, you know, we, we help people find those breakthrough use cases faster. Um, we don't want to go the way of some of the web tools where it allowed people to crank out junk really, really fast and cheap. You know, so, and so that's why we tend to lean towards, that's why I say professional experience designers, because I still think design is design is design. And that really good products are still built with teams of people and stakeholders. And very it's very rare that you have one person in a vacuum uh, just completely building something um, beautiful and groundbreaking from scratch. I believe it can happen, but for the big momentum for this to become the to be the next point in that evolution uh, of computing, we've got to we got to acknowledge that the big companies and product companies need to get into these platforms. Um, so we we've talked about wayfinding, but I, I want to give you I guess the opportunity to talk about more things that y either you have built or you've seen some already users have been building and that excite you about uh, being able to design quickly in AR. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> really, the trick is to think about how how do how do I enhance the real environment? 
the 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 a, a lot of the use cases you'll see the reason why they're not compelling is because they're afraid to lean on the real environment or they don't have the capability, and so it's something that could be easily viewed on a conference room table as much as a dining room table, and they're they're playing it safe. So I you know the things that have really I think the things that we have shown and shared in this short amount of time that we've been publicly sharing stuff are things that do interact with the real world. So that's why wayfinding's done really well. Um, I think Torch, uh, this is a little bit of a heady conversation, but I think Torch itself is a compelling AR application. We're showing how people can manifest an idea visually and collaborate. And that's something we haven't talked about yet, but um, you can have as many people logged into the project with you at the same time as possible. And you could be in the same physical space talking about the same experience, or we could all be remote talking about it, but working live together. So... <clears throat> I think that the best experiences are the ones that really play off the real environment in some way. Uh, and we'll continue to add features and capabilities to torch to allow people to do that dynamically. Um, and then they're and, and then doing, and then thinking about the fact that we can have both shared and individualized experiences at the same time. So for, you know, just cause we showed the video, it's just easiest to reference the wayfinding example, but you know, we could be looking at the same robot from our perspective or from our respective devices and feel like we're talking about the same robot, but the robot could also be showing us personalized information to our own screens. And I don't think people have even scratched the surface of what's possible there between blending shared experience and individualized experience in the same, in the same context. Um, but things that uh, work well are things that interact that recognize objects and interact with them. So there's a lot of stuff with physical products and packaging and books. That's really cool. I'm, I think I'm, I think I'm going to do a demo project this week where we've got a bookshelf in the office where uh, you just scan the bookshelf and it kind of shows you our, our collective book reviews of each of those products. Um, so it, it's getting people to think in that way. What, what is something that is physically not possible, but works with the physical world. I'll give you another random one. Uh, we, uh, my wife and I bought a house recently that's being re that we're remodeling, and because I don't have enough stuff to do, and um, I was doing some electrical like wiring, and the the electrical panels down in the basement, and I was working on a switch on the on the second floor, and I had to keep going down, check the breaker, flip it. If I could have just brought up uh, either a view of the ba the bathroom I was working in down to the basement. Or bring a view of the electrical panel up to the bathroom. I, you know, all of a sudden you're thinking about how can I, how can I use uh, the virtual capabilities to eliminate physical boundaries and barriers. So, you know, uh, I didn't have that capability, so I was forced to run up and down the stairs three or four times. And you know, I'd have my wife go stand up in the bathroom when I flip the breaker on, make sure there's no smoke when I turn it on. So, like, just getting people to think in that way, and and I fully acknowledge. I had the luxury of working in an environment at Magic Leap where not only was all this things, this class of things possible, but we also had the glasses part of it too. And and really that's our advantage. We 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 were steeped in this way of thinking years before most people even know what's possible. And so it's going to be on us to show like in 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 a lot of ways in these early days we're acting as consultants when we work with some of these uh, designers that are using Torch, like we try to figure out what are they trying to accomplish and we give them some suggestions on that, that. Again, that's exactly how the wayfinding thing happened, but we're going to keep doing that. 
Yeah, I think it's extremely important for you guys to to work on the examples because it's yeah. as as smart as designers can be, or even people like us that are in in thinking about spatial computing for quite some time. Um, it's we're just so limited to the examples that we know of for for that yeah. to build though that realm of possibility for me to be motivated to build something for that. So like, you know, I hadn't even thought about a wayfinding thing until I saw it. So it's having like this built with torch hashtag. I think is really really important, and it at the end can help people motivate people by seeing like what can be done because it's I mean it's what what can you it's hard for me to even visualize like okay to think contextually to think about my my room without knowing already pre-built examples that uh, of other designers doing things so yeah that just that's just my aside of uh <laughs> people being motivated by seeing examples of what can be done and that jogging their memory yeah there's a couple of of those things that that are on us and the other one is to get and we still fall into the strap a little bit too is to get you to realize that you can start working in 3d at the earliest part of the conception so, right, how many times have we sat in meetings talking about a potential 3D project and we wind up waving our hands, drawing on a whiteboard and, you know, and, and like really, it really is as simple as if you're trying to, if you're trying to convey a spatial idea and you're not trying to get people to see what's in your mind's eye, you could just bring up an iPad, drag in a few Sketchfab assets, arrange them and say, and either screen share what you're looking at or actually invite them into the project and say, here's what I was thinking. And then you could have a more productive conversation. You can actually focus on the problem instead of spending so much time trying to communicate the the what you're seeing in your mind's eye. And so that's another thing that we're excited about is is you know uh, that's that's another point of friction in in this whole industry. And I, I say this is true for VR as as AR is people have ideas, but they don't have the the technical capabilities to to execute them. And the amount of money and time involved to turn that into something visual that they can then actually refine their idea against is too much. You know, it's like uh, if I if I want to if, if I'm a company and I have budget and I want to build a VR application, and and I have to go to a contractor or an agency, and then we have to figure out our language to try to communicate the idea, and then I'm already spending time and money just to get a prototype done. And that, you know, that was another insight we saw really early on at Magically, that this is, the, if we can make working in 3D as as breezy and easy as it is to take a picture on your phone or to record a video to communicate something, to express something, um, that's powerful. And, uh, and and it helps people think more spatially at the same time. So, it, it, yeah, we, we've got to do a lot of, like, reminding and education on a bunch of different fronts. Definitely. How far do you think we are from like object classification when it comes to the things in your room, whether it's a desk or table or glasses on your thing? Like I saw one of the demos that I was seeing was someone, uh, I think it was not like a real time translation tool, but it was like they had labeled glasses orange and English, and then you would tap on it and it would translate it to a different language. But obviously, like, I don't think there there was any sort of like classification happening in real time of the things that were in front of the camera. But do you think that's like around the corner and and essential for for AR? Yeah, I think it's here. I think it's just not been made accessible. And so that is one thing I'm also excited about, Torch, is we've kind of happened upon a way of exposing what would have 
just a couple years ago been extremely sophisticated. It have been it would have been complex to utilize these technologies even even as a software engineer, but we've come up with this visual kind of spatial environment. So, like the example I usually give to that respect is, um, you know, <clears throat> we were talking earlier about responsive design and how we expect screen-based applications to be responsive to our different device form factors, form factors. Um, so now we've got to have, we got to start thinking about having applications responsive to environments and responsive to different size environments. And then the next step is responsive to, am I in my home or in my office? And how do you expose that to a designer? And, uh, you know, we can actually do that with our, the, you know, the kind of the, the framework we built with Torch we could actually empower a designer to say, hey, try this company's AI, hook it into your Torch project and say, I want to be responsive. I want to know what type of room you think this is. And then I will switch the Torch scene based on that input. And it would actually allow you to test different people's AI or different, you know, the air cloud side of things, um, test people's different uh, reconstruction techniques or and things like that. So I actually think that... First, we're gonna we're gonna redefine how people think about design in, in 3D, and then I think the next logical step is how applications are built. I think the the challenges around true, you know, Magic Leap's definition of spatial computing, where you're wearing a device, computing is pervasive and ubiquitous. It's not in your face, but it is always there, and it's contextually aware, and you dynamically load and unload as needed experiences or functionality i think this it, it makes a lot of sense we should start thinking about like that is a, a complex engineering challenge and maybe mm-hmm. we need to start raising the you know raising the game of how applications are built so uh, when you mentioned um you know it's, it's a complex um uh problem well i mean l- look at tesla's new neural you know, engine since it just deployed mm-hmm. um it basically uses up all the hardware, according to some <laughs> analysts, that is in that car, and it's like a super complex neural model, and it's just basically there to detect, you know, objects moving next to me, and it uses some cameras. And I mean, this is really cutting-edge stuff. And I mean, what I honestly am always really skeptical about when it comes to augmented reality mm-hmm. is obviously not uh, what we've seen uh, right now on the screen. It's obviously not what Magic Leap has been showing, but like. This spatial computing entangled with segmented reality and those spaces around me, I think that at some point you can't design everything and the machine needs to, you know, do some intelligent uh, placement of objects, but yep. for that it needs to understand the room. And here comes a challenge. I am not yet really aware of any true breakthrough in something that you would call a cognitive system. Yes. You definitely have single neuronal networks that can detect objects. You definitely have certain neural uh, networks that can label things, uh, but the question is how much creation power you need. Obviously, you could, you know, throw in the buzzword 5G, and yes, 5G is <laughs> low latency, it would be enough, but once again, um, I think that while research has, you know, been, you know, very steady and very fast regards artificial intelligence, actually, a friend of mine studies in um, uh, Oxford, and uh, he's doing right now his PhD on question how you could actually combine different different neural networks uh, that do different things and build a neural network on top of that, like the brain does it. But this is like really basic research. Yep. They don't have what do you mean? Yet. What and do you mean by cognitive network? Like, what, 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 I don't understand where the, you're going uh, off the here. Co- um, cognitive system, so, um, or cognitive architecture. 
Um, let's say when you look at how your brain processes information, basically something you could describe as a hierarchical system where at every moment of time your brain can do certain extrapolation of information from what you see and at every level it adds more interpolation, more interpretation and at some point you see this as a desk, I can sit on it, it probably tastes like wood if I lick it, <laughs> so there are certain assumptions. But in the early okay. stage you obviously also see edges and colors and that's something that you know the headsets those days can do. When you want to build, you know, a true, powerful and like really future looking forward spatial computing platform, however you will call it, this thing needs to be kind of as smart as you as understanding what objects are, what they're what's important, in your are, room? what you can do with them. Yeah, I mean, it needs to understand every object and what it can do in order to do like really good stuff. Because I mean, you want to go out of the room at some point, right? You want to go out in the world. You don't want to always stay in that room. And yeah, but there that's not I that. see a real huge challenge. Like I don't. I, I used to call this the. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I used to call this the dungeon master uh, problem. So basically, um, so the the only people I've seen really address it publicly is, is Unity with their Mars system. Timony's talked about this quite a lot. Uh, M A R S, and um, it's adding. It, it's a. It's just scratching the surface, but it's adding. We've got to go beyond absolute positioning of objects and, and absolute logic. And and you've got to have like um it's the dungeon master thing. You, you can't really tell you can't tell this object exactly what to do in any situation. You can only give it uh a, a, like a, some cognitive, you know, inputs and say, I want you know, I want this object to always be over if there's a table in the room. I want this object to always kind of go to that table and I always want it to be kind of above the table. That's something super easy for me to convey to you guys. And you probably have some picture in your mind when I say that, but for me to get a piece of software to do that, <clears throat> I think writing code's not the best way. And so that that's what I meant earlier by, you know, um, if we start thinking about building applications visually and in context and you really utilizing the, the, the six degree of freedom and all the inputs um, of these new devices to allow someone to author and connect up this intelligence and, and, and maybe, maybe that's how you train it, right? Maybe, maybe I don't even say I want this object to look for a table. Uh, I just say every time I open this project in a different room, I, I tend to put this object on the table and the system learns that over time and you capture that and you say, yes, I want to keep that behavior. But I also played around with scale. I don't want you to change your size. And, and you know, it, it's all very, very early. Um, but it, I do, I do think that the complexity of, of working with the real environment and, and working across, uh, I think this also applies to VR as well, with the different form factors and capabilities. I just think we can't keep doing if, if else Boolean logic type, type software for, to, to really push these things. Yeah, that the the whole procedural, you know, game world element, I think, is just like the building blocks for what is truly essential for AR. Um, especially like, okay, if Magic Leap wants to push on gaming as, as one of the biggest use cases for AR, not only is that like very difficult to do on a visual side, right? Like with with the with how waveguides work, but like um just because everything about AR is contextual and about your room rather than replacing your room entirely with a game world, 
it, you have to know what is in the room. You have to know where the door is and, and where your walls are. And then the game logic has to account for like, these enemies will always come from, you know, blast through your door. And these enemies will always be trying to hide behind your bed or behind a chair. There's a lot of like all the all these procedural things that people have been building have to be working on like such a higher level or even and it made very easy for a game designer to use. Uh, it's, it's really like hard. A I can level of complexity. Yeah, like is a, yeah, the first like level more. would be to understand that like so the first level would to actually understand there is a door and it's a door, but the second level that you mentioned is like even more complex because now you introduce objects or like you introduce entities. Let's call them entities to the kind of representation of the real world that you have in your simulation running in that um, IR, and they need now to have certain smart behavior. So suddenly each mm -hmm. of those individuals needs to respond not only to something like in games, because in, like this VR, it's very easy. Most of the things you have in VR, you spawn yourself. You know their position, you know their entity. But in the real world, something uh, can happen that is not very predictable or something unlikely, and then you need actually to spend a lot of calculational power to, you know, make sure that, you know, this blob of energy that you put on top of a desk is actually has enough intelligence to stay on top of a desk. So, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but it's like even more complex to actually make sure that the objects interact in the right way after you detected the world. Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah. you know, the, the Dr. G game they, they just released last week, um, they've been working on that project for, for years and they were, they were working on it actually slightly before I joined company. And if if you've seen the gameplay at all, it's it's portal based. There's portals in the walls, and so they're just using the raw meshing data from from the system right. and looking for what looked to be like walls. But then, you know, I was talking to the team at LeapCon, um, and and they they had a special environment set up for for demoing the game there, and they had these black curtains at the top of the walls. And and they were very obviously put there for some reason. So I talked to them a bit about and and essentially their original logic was if I see something that looks like a wall, put a portal there, and the size of the portal is determined by how much surface is there. But what they found was you couldn't just do because sometimes there's a partition and maybe it's a cubicle wall. Well, the way their game is built, a lot of stuff flies through the portal into the environment. If you can walk around to the backside of that wall, you can actually cheat and, and, mm. and actually see parts of the game you weren't supposed to. So they, they they detect partitions and they say, oh, wait, this this wall doesn't go all the way to the ceiling. So if it, if it doesn't go all the way to the ceiling, we will not put a portal there so somebody can't walk around behind it. Well, in the in the convention huh. center last week, it just so happened that the walls were giving the, the system the impression that they could be walked behind and they had to put you know, some sort of reference up there so the system would accept it as a place that they could put a portal. So hmm. even something as simple, I mean, you know, we're not even talking about object classification. We're talking about right. sticking a portal on a wall <laughs> right, and right. trying I to mean, make sure that works 100% of the time. And, and they, they actually, you know, the way they tested that, um, they had a foam core room at Weta that they could change the shape and size of the hmm. rooms and just constantly test it. Now, ideally, the interesting thing about AI becoming more and more uh, accessible for people to use is maybe that work won't be one-off eventually. And maybe whatever intelligence they gathered from doing all this testing and, and being able to handle a partition versus a wall, because maybe somebody wants to build an experience that only works with the partitions and doesn't work well. So how do we capture 
how do we keep people from redoing that themselves every single, you know, that right. to me, that's right. super exciting that we can, we can start to componentize, you know, it's kind of like the bootstrap example again, you know, like bootstrap was a way for, to build a web front end super fast that was generally acceptable in quality and got you off to a great start and you could tune it from there. Um, we're just not there yet. You know, we just don't have enough people building this enough of this stuff yet, but that will be the key that make gets us to that, that big vision of ubiquitous spatial computing. I mean, we can't, can't have every person building all the intelligence into their own app all the time. That makes that makes sense, and I think uh, Unity, the Mars, uh, what, what Unity is doing with Mars is is for f- to eliminate that need for foam walls, yes. right? To to basically be able to design AR um, for a different space than the space that you're in, um, to yes. be able to tweak like where walls would be or where the yeah, just floor is. Oh, just it's, it's an interesting problem. And I'm trying to think of like how you would do it. Like it's, you should be using AR to change. <laughs> right if you're designing something it would be so silly to actually have to like build walls for you to like then test different uh environments like that's almost so contu- yeah. non-intuitive in terms of why ar exists but um i guess that's that's why mars also is now existing well and that's another reason to be on a mobile device because you can walk you can you can take it to these environments as opposed to a desktop or a laptop which you're going to be you can only simulate so much right all right, final question before we let you go. Um, where did the name Torch come from? <laughs> right, right. So um, when I left Magically, um, I went to AWE. The U- I, I've always gone to the AWE show in the U.S. Um, in, I, I think it happens the first week of June. Um, and I needed to come up with a name um, that wasn't Magically. And so I did Vertex Labs. <laughs> I just I just made up oh, Vertex really? Labs. Yeah, yeah. Just a, it's literally the name of a company of a friend of mine. Oh, really? Well, I, I but like VRTX. Oh uh, yeah, no, this was and it was it was just a it was just a completely made up company name, and um and but I I, I did it just to have something to attach you know to say I'm 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 still doing work, and um. And then we started getting serious about forming the company. We're like, we can't, we can't use Vertex Labs. Uh, not only would is probably someone using it, but it just didn't. So I went on like a week long brainstorm, and I dug into a lot of crazy alternative languages. I was in the Esperanto dictionary, all this stuff. Um, ultimately, um, I I got to a short list. What I liked about Torch was it was. It's a tool. It's a it's an enabling tool. I, I was thinking about the flame version of Torch, not the European flashlight uh, version. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know that if you think about Torch, is really a way of harnessing a technology which is fire, right? So fire is this has a lot of power, but um, to be able to both harness it and use it for things you want to use it for and share it, uh, a torch is a great way to do that. So that so I really liked that meaning behind it. Um, also we found some really great domain names <laughs> that back nice. that up. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, we, you, I don't know if you remember, but you know, cause we, we've been a little quiet, but our initial identity has been very triangle oriented. And that was because not only is a triangle, a pretty fundamental element of 3d, but also, um, the alchemy symbol for fire is a triangle. 
and there's three hmm. points and we have three co-founders. So the other co-founder, I, I, I mentioned Josh, but uh, Tony was our third co-founder. He comes from a totally different world than we do. And, he, you know, he comes from a, a, a large cloud infrastructure and operations background. And so we balance each other out like a triangle very well. So it just all kind of felt good. <laughs> And, and, and so that, that, that's, that, that's kind of the origin story about how, how we, but we, we will try not to ever have a, a literal flame in our, in any of our material. We we're not trying to be that literal about it, but it, it was just a nice short name and it had a lot of uh, relevant meaning behind it that we liked. Yeah, not to mention you know the Illuminati or anything, but uh, there's always there's uh, always I, I can't <laughs> I can't mention that actually. <laughs> um, and and yeah, of it, because you signed some NDAs yes, somewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. <It's> amazing. <laughs> All right, this has, has been, been unwieldy. <laughs> uh, this has been a great conversation, Paul. How can people find you? Uh, contact you, and how how they can how can they find out more about uh, Torch Three D? I think Twitter is the best answer for both of those. Uh, I'm Mug of Paul on Twitter, M U G A O F P A U L, and um, Torch App on Twitter at T O R C H A P P. And Fantastic. we love Twitter. So, yes, send us your stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's, is it available to download yet? I think you yes, guys launched. It's freely, freely available. We launched um, three weeks ago, um, available for iPhone and iPad. Um, we are uh, gathering interest around Android. We we would certainly love to be on Android, and uh, so uh, please go to the website, hit the download link, and that'll allow you to input your preference for iPhone or Android. Nice. All right, and you can find the podcast on Twitter at ResearchVRCast, and uh, you can find us on Patreon as well. If you like the show and if you like the conversations we're having, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It would be amazing to keep the lights on in this virtual room. Um, <laughs> they're very costly. There's a lot of lights. Uh, so yeah, yeah we we, not like we have unlimited torches. <laughs> Nice. Yes, we do need more. <laughs> uh, yes, it starts. You can s- support us with anything as little as literally $2. That is half a cup of coffee in San Francisco. If you want me to excited and motivated <laughs> to keep having these conversations. And I do drink coffee right before having these conversations. It would be... No one wants a so. No. No. Oh, my God. Or a, or a hungry Azad. It's oh, funny. No. You call me... I don't know why you always call me Azad. Because I, I always introduce myself on the podcast as Oz. And you're like the only person... Oh, yeah. At least, uh, you and my family, I I'm think. Breaking the version. Sorry. <laughs> no. it's, it's just a name that doesn't make very much sense in English. So I've always gone by Oz, or at least for the last like five years. But um, anyway, we digress. Thank you, Paul, for, for joining us. And Thank uh, you for inviting me. This is super yeah. fun. Thank you. And uh, yeah, thank you all for much. listening. You. Goodbye. Goodbye.